and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This episode is out a bit early this week because we've got a very special guest on the podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Camilla Hawthorne, chair of the Royal College of GPs. I spoke to Professor Hawthorne a week or so ago, and we discussed what needs to be done to help tackle spiralling workload in general practice, how you can retain more GPs in the workforce, and what changes are needed to help turn the current situation in general practice around. We also discussed how the college hopes to influence political parties in the run-up to the next general election, whether the RCGP's new exam will help tackle differential attainment, and why, despite all of the current challenges, general practice is still a great place to work. We were speaking ahead of the RCGP's annual conference, which takes place in Glasgow on Thursday and Friday this week. GP Online is delighted to once again be the college's media partner for that event. We'll be in Glasgow reporting all the news from the conference, which you can read on our website from Thursday morning. So I'm really pleased to be joined now by Chair of the Royal College of GPs, Professor Camilla Hawthorne. Along with being an academic GP, Camilla is also a salaried GP partner in Mountain Ash in the South Wales Valleys. Her research interests are in diabetes, health education and health inequalities. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Camilla. Thank you so much, Emma, for inviting me onto this podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to be here. So first of all, we're coming towards winter now and you were one of the health leaders invited to number 10 in September to discuss how to best prepare the NHS to deal with what could be another challenging winter this year. What did you discuss about general practice in that meeting and why do you think there was no money in that £200 million support fund for general practice? I think it's worth just noting that we weren't initially invited to that meeting just as at the January rescue meeting at number 10. And I had to make some really strong representations to be there at all. So it was quite clear that they weren't planning to spend any time on primary care. Uh, The Prime Minister and Secretary of State for Health were there, and they were more interested, really, to hear from the ambulance and hospital trusts about how plans were going to ease winter pressures. Um, They wanted to know how many additional ambulances there were, how many additional beds, virtual wards, and so on. The Prime Minister left after about 20 minutes into that meeting. It was another 20 minutes before I was able to speak. But I talked quite a lot about the importance of urgent and emergency care being regarded to start with the patient at home. And that, of course, includes the primary care part of that journey. I also talked about the need for an OPEL system similar to the one in secondary care, which is about patient safety, so that you know, if practices are being overrun, they have a trigger system that will then trigger a number of different local resources that may help them survive and carry on through a particularly busy time. And that's certainly one of the things that we're going to be talking about in our campaigning prior to the general election. The other thing I spoke about was the need to ensure that the respiratory hubs that are already being funded through winter pressures monies should be able to increase capacity to allow more patients to be accommodated in the event of a crisis. You know, if we have another strep A crisis as we had last December, that sort of stop valve might be really useful for general practice. Because, of course, if general practice can't cope with winter pressures, then the rest of the NHS can't cope either because it all sort of goes on into A&E and it shouldn't do. Uh, We need to be able to manage in primary care. I think that that is why there's been no additional funding for winter pressures. The government just doesn't consider primary care as part of urgent and emergency care, which is the representation that we made really strongly at that meeting. 
One of the things you highlighted in response to that announcement about the money was that general practice is basically now dealing with unsustainable demand all year round. I mean, there's no real break in the summer as they kind of used to be. What immediate steps do you think the government should be looking at to help tackle this issue in the short term so that practices can cope this winter? So it'd be lovely to have money for winter pressures, but we don't. Um, So what can we do with what we've got? And we think there's a raft of different things. So for example, stopping CQC inspections, except for those practices that have been identified as needing them. Stopping quaff collection of data in quarters three and four is a routine thing every winter. Expanding the role of the respiratory infection hubs, as I've already said, and also the institution of an OPEL system for primary care, just as there is for secondary care, so that practices can actually press a trigger to release more resources on a temporary basis to allow them to manage at times of extreme stress. So, you know, when I'm on call, it's quite common to deal with between 50 and 70 patients in a day, which I personally think is not very safe. But if I was in the middle of a crisis and there were 90 patients, I need to be able to seek some immediate help that will enable us to function as a practice and not fall over. I mean, we're talking about workload pressures here. How concerned are you about the impact that record NHS waiting lists for hospital treatments? How concerned are you about that, the impact that's having on general practice? And do you agree that that's sort of helped driving up pressure on practices? Yes, I'm really concerned. I'm concerned for patients as well as for the implications of additional workload on GPs. The distress of watching somebody who's unwell or in pain, who has to wait months, to be seen is you know pretty considerable for a doctor who's trying to help them and it's outside of our terms of references as GPs really because it's not something that we can control i think the additional risk to patients knowing that they're going to wait many more months than was normal also needs to be factored into the workload and the stress for GPs so if i have a patient for example who presents with very heavy bleeding during periods menorrhagia and i refer that in the past would be seen within six to eight weeks. Now it might be eight to 12 months. And you've got to think about the risk of what's happening to that patient during that time and what else could go wrong before they're finally seen. And that is additional, that's emotional and intellectual workload for the GP and a lot more you know, safety netting than we would normally have had to do. Patients very often come in specially to ask us to expedite their case which we do sometimes even if we know that it's not urgent, urgent or an emergency because it is actually becomes urgent if you have to wait months and months and you can't sleep at night because your hip is hurting so much. We spend a lot of time following up on these things. You'd need to ask your admin staff to ring the clinic secretaries to find out what's happened to that referral. Has it got lost? How much longer is the patient going to wait? And then they have to contact the patient and let the patient know as well. And of course, you have to spend time listening sympathetically to complaints about the whole system. And sometimes because the patient is so upset and in pain and angry, those complaints are directed at us directly, as well as the additional sort of administration time that we're we're having to make. It is a real problem for us, actually. I have suggested that the NHS should have an Amazon-like system and what you think of this, where once a referral has been received, the patient is notified by email or text, just like you do with Amazon. And you can then follow your progress as a patient up the waiting list. So you know how much longer you're going to have to wait. And when your time has come, you get told electronically quickly 
they can see for themselves then where they are. We don't have to spend hours and hours trying to find out for them. You touched on there about the fact that it does drive complaints. You know, Obviously, patients must be very frustrated and the first place they can get to, the only place many of them can get to, is their GP practice. We've seen like falling patient satisfaction levels in England. Do you think the waiting list has been a key driver in that? And how does it, all of this impact on GPs and their teams? So I think that, you know, there's no doubt that the public in general are much less satisfied with the NHS than they used to be. And it is such a shame because it's a brilliant system, if only it was properly resourced. It's difficult to know how much of it is due to the fall in the NHS waiting list, but I'm sure it adds to the general frustration because as a patient, you first of all, you struggle to get an appointment with a GP and then you have to wait months for treatment if you're going to be referred and you and your GP have agreed that you need it. Everything seems to be a sort of manana thing. You're never going to get something quickly. I think sometimes dissatisfied patients can be very unpleasant and they can be very difficult to deal with, especially since, you know, we can see their point. We're on the same side, really, and we're also disappointed that they're having to wait. So it is very difficult sometimes to handle. I think the important thing is to remain empathetic and sympathetic, remain professional and show them that you are going to do everything you can to get the best for them, really. It also adds to burnout and turnover of staff, which is, again, a problem for us. Last time you were on the podcast in November, which was when you first took on the role of chair, I asked you about your key priorities and you talked about the importance of developing good retention strategies for GPs. Do you think there's really been any progress in the past year on retention? I know you were very disappointed with the lack of focus on it in the NHS workforce plan. So what would you like to see happen now? So you're right, the NHS workforce plan barely mentions retention and really Mm. gives no detail um, and certainly nothing specific for general practice. It has been very disappointing that neither the government nor Labour actually seem to be paying much attention to this. You know, that need for urgent repair and resourcing of retention schemes, because there are some, it's just that people don't know about them. They're very patchy, they're very localised, and sometimes they run out of funding. And by the time you may find out about them, it's kind of too late. You've already decided you're going. So I think there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done. And this is certainly something we're really focusing on in our lobbying. Now, I know that the NHS is conducting a review of retention schemes in general practice as we speak now, but that's been going on for months. And it's likely to be many months more before anything's done. And meanwhile, we have lots of suggestions. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody what this review finds. We've got lots of suggestions as to what's needed. And we're worried that by the time it takes for the NHS to wake up to the situation, even more GPs will have left. And although the uh, long-term workforce plan is proposing 50% more GPs coming in, by the time they come in, they'll be coming into a wasteland because everybody else will have gone. That's not good. And you can see it happening We keep offering to help and we're very keen to get involved and get stuck in. And what are some of those suggestions? What do you think the college can do to drive forward improving retention programmes? We've got lots of ideas on how retention strategies could be developed because, of course, people are leaving the profession at all stages of their career um, and people need different things at different stages. The government has already delivered in some ways, for example, by doing something about pensions. That's definitely a win. But people are still leaving because of workload and burnout. So there need to be retention strategies to deal with that. And there need to be strategies to deal with the younger GPs who finish their training, hang about, not quite sure what to do, consider going abroad for a bit, sometimes forever, 
or who locum and really don't get stuck into general practice and don't really feel the joy of being a GP and getting to know a community and getting to know patients on a sort of regular basis. So we have lots of ideas on ways in which that could be repaired, in particular, the new two practice retention strategy for young GPs who just CCT'd, who could spend two years in a salaried position with some headspace to develop themselves personally and professionally as well, develop an extended role, get to understand how a practice works, and quite probably will end up staying in that practice as a partner. But at the moment, there are just too many young GPs who are standing on the sidelines, afraid to dip their toe into the water of partnership, uh, which is just such a shame. So there's an awful lot that we could do as a college in broadcasting a national retention strategy, which is what we're asking for. We're asking for a national program with a national portal that everybody knows about and can access easily. And once they go through that portal, they can then be diverted off into whatever area it is of their career that's causing them strife and causing them to think about leaving. Do you think the NHS workforce plan is going to address the workforce challenges in general practice? I mean, on a scale of one to five, how confident are you that in 15 years time, we'll actually have the number of GPs we need in England, with one being very low? I'm not going to answer that one properly uh, in the way you want, because who knows what the NHS will look like in 15 years time. I think that we should be commending the NHS workforce plan because it's the first time there's been such a plan for the NHS. And now we need to see how it plays out. And we need to be working on the retention side of things. There has been modelling. And we've asked to see that modelling. Uh, We thought that maybe we were feeding into the modelling before the plan came out, although we never really know whether we did succeed in that or not. We certainly sent in lots of suggestion and ideas. And the interesting thing is that even the National Audit Office, who have been asked to review the whole way in which the National Workforce Plan was laid out, even they haven't yet been able to see the modelling. We keep asking for it as well. There are many variables really as to whether this is going to be a success. You know, will the NHS be properly resourced in the years to come? Will general practice change in the way it's run with more salaried jobs than partnerships? I don't know. Will parts of the NHS become privatised even more than they are already? And all of that is going to affect whether or not the NHS workforce plan is successful, I think. If you were talking to a medical student today, how would you convince them that a career in general practice is the right choice? So there are many medical students who really, really want to become GPs. Some of them have come into medical school wanting to be GPs because nowadays so many medical schools have placements in primary care in the first and second years. Some of them quite rapidly realise just how good a job in general practice can be. As a college, we encourage them as much as we can by promoting and supporting GP medical student societies in every single medical school in the UK. And by putting as many of them as possible into early placements in GP practices, I hope they'll see the potential of general practice as a fulfilling job. They're not stupid. They will also see the burnout. They'll see the workload. They'll see all of that. But it's important they go into this profession with their eyes open, I think. It's a really fulfilling job. You're at the centre of your community. And that's what we all want to be doing, really, as doctors. It's interesting that all the major political parties are talking of the importance of general practice to the public and to the future of the NHS. And we are continuing to keep their feet to the fire with regards to what general practice needs in order to survive and to thrive. You don't want to just survive you want to move on, you know, you want to be a 21st century general practice. 
One of the things I did want to ask you about, you know, we're talking about the workforce plan and that plan also envisages a really big expansion of various other roles in primary care. There was a high profile case recently where a patient died after seeing a physician's associate on more than one occasion. This has raised a lot of questions around the supervision of these new roles. And the BMA recently issued a position statement saying it opposed the expansion of physician's associates in the NHS. Is the college concerned about plans to expand the use of physician's associates? What's the college's position on all of this? I'm not going to comment on that particular case. No. Physician associates should only be working in any capacity, whether it's primary or secondary care, under the supervision of a qualified doctor. So I don't know the ins and outs of that case, and I can't comment, but that is the fact. That's how it should be. I'm concerned that PAs and other allied healthcare professionals should have a proper induction when they come into general practice. There should be time in that practice to supervise them properly. And I don't think that's happening in some cases. We've been pressing NHS England to work with us to ensure that this happens in a much more systematic way, offering to develop and provide that guidance on induction and supervision. But we've had little success so far. NHS England hasn't been interested, but we keep pushing. I think that PAs can be invaluable in primary care so long as our two red lines are followed. So these are the two. Firstly, they are not GPs. And they should never be expected to perform the full range of work of GPs or be counted as GPs. And the second red line is that they must always work under the supervision of a qualified GP. And then in addition to that, I think it is high time the GMC regulates them. They need to be a regulated profession, ASAP. And the last I've heard from the GMC is it's going to take over a year for that to actually happen. And that's not quick enough for me. They need to be regulated now so that they know how to behave and they know how to introduce themselves. They know how to make sure that the patient in front of them doesn't think that they're seeing a doctor because they're not doctors. And in fact, there's some new guidance just out from the Royal College of Physicians that is well worth looking at that is actually drawing their red lines uh, for physician associates as well, which I thoroughly support. I mentioned at the start that health inequalities has been an interest of yours throughout your career. Obviously, the cost of living crisis has really added to problems around inequity and health inequalities, particularly over the last year, 18 months. What impact is this all having on GPs and general practice? Sadly, we are seeing more and more cases of people who can't afford to take time off sick or who can't afford basic over-the-counter medications. Almost three quarters of GPs in a recent survey that we did told us that they've seen an increase in consultations where patients were suffering due to lack of funds and the cost of living. We're seeing problems, I certainly am, more and more associated with poor nutrition. I'm particularly seeing a lot of folic acid deficiencies. So I think it adds to GPs' burdens and also that sense of distress, really, because I mean, we can't control the cost of living crisis, really. All we can do is try and help as much as we can. In some cases, we're able to push for social prescribing, like the installation of boilers in the homes of people with COPD, which we know has real beneficial effects and reducing hospital admissions and chest infections. But this just needs to be a much more standard way of practicing, really and much more easily available. We also know that the funding for GPs in deprived areas is not properly organised, if you like, because GPs in those areas are receiving about 7% less in the way of funding than GPs in affluent areas, while seeing 10% more patients, probably with more chronic illness as well. Uh, So the workload is higher, and that needs to be addressed, not just through the Carhill formula. We need to have a really careful look with the BMA as well how this funding could be 
channeled towards deprived areas. What we've been talking, you've mentioned politics a few times and Labour, the Conservatives, the current government. Um, We're moving towards what will be a general election next year. What role do you see the college playing in influencing manifesto pledges around the NHS in the coming year? And what will you be arguing with people about? We're going to both the major party conferences, just been to the Conservative Party conference where I took part in one roundtable and two panel discussions met seven backbench MPs on a one-to-one basis. And that's all part of what we will be doing at Labour as well. We're about to launch our own manifesto for general practice, which we're calling Seven Steps to Keep General Practice Functioning, Enable Us to Serve Our Patients. Um, If these steps are accepted, we think that we have a good chance of being able to offer a timely service to our patients with more continuity of care and a more holistic, up-to-date, patient-focused approach. So we're campaigning in those sort of key areas of workforce, in retention and infrastructure, patient safety and health inequalities. We're trying to engage with ministers from all the parties and shadow ministers and also beyond conference season as well to encourage them to champion issues facing GPs. So we've got a meeting, I hope, coming up with Lord Markham to talk about GP infrastructure and practice premises and capital investment. I have been trying to get to see Steve Barclay since last November unsuccessfully, but I do meet with Neil O'Brien fairly regularly. So we're doing everything we can to push the buttons. And if you were the Prime Minister, what three things would you do to turn around the situation in general practice? Am I really only allowed three things? (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose it's trying to get you to prioritise. I know there's loads of things we could do. I know. I have seven in our manifesto, but okay, with winter coming, they would be a national retention programme, a much more robust approach to the workload situation in general practice, reduction of bureaucracy, including COAF, unnecessary CQC, inspections and policing of the workload that's coming down to primary care from secondary care. That really does need good attention. And then the third one is a clearer approach to patient safety with a mandatory OPEL system for ICBs that triggers additional resources. Am I allowed to talk about the longer term then? Because I've got three more. Yeah, go for it. So assuming the above three are successful, and I hope I'm not cheating uh, with regard to your question, it would be increased resources to primary care, at least back to the 11% of the NHS budget that we had 12 or more years ago, really. Resources to improve the GP practice infrastructure so that we've got the space and facilities, not just for keeping the status quo. So what are we going to need in the next 10 or 20 years for 21st century general practice? And then the third one is health inequalities, um, reducing social inequalities. If I were the prime minister, maybe I could do that. And actually, you know, we've seen the prime minister say something very bold with all this stuff about smoking. Regardless of what you think of it and whether it'll work or not, it is actually a really bold announcement. So they can do it if they want to. And what I'd like to see is some work from the prime minister on reducing social inequalities, which we know are the key to health inequalities. The first candidates are going to sit the new college exam, the simulated consultation assessment this autumn. The college, I know, has been working really hard to reduce differential attainment because we know that there are differences between results achieved by white candidates and black and ethnic minority candidates. Do you think the new exam is going to make progress towards tackling this? I know that issues of differential attainment have been at the centre of development of this new assessment. And the people who have designed it and developing it and are about to deliver it have really made it their central priority. They've done an awful lot of work on it. So, for example, they have adjusted the weighting of the marking domain so that there is less 
emphasis on interpersonal skills and more emphasis on clinical management. And that's based on past research on sociolinguistics in the CSA, uh, which has fed into this. Also, a move to six attempts uh, for all trainees instead of four plus one, so that we're now much more in line with the other Royal Medical Colleges. All the new cases that have been written for this SCA have been checked independently, reviewed by an EDNI linguistic expert. So there is a, you know, a huge effort to try and make this exam as fair to everybody as possible. Having said that, I'm not sure that it is the exam that is the full cause of the differential attainments that we see. A lot of this is about the training and the preparation for this type of exam. So again, we're working really closely with our education colleagues to try and make sure that everybody, regardless of where they came from originally, is getting the best possible training to prepare them to pass the SCA and and the other elements of the exam as well. I think it, yes, it lies, a lot of it lies in training and preparation for exams. And I think we're also trying to reduce the stress on people because it's going to be a virtual exam. And God willing, that will all work because uh, we're very much you know, ahead of the curve in this. It does mean you don't have to worry about traveling to the exam venue. You don't have to pay for overnight accommodation. You're not going to somewhere that's strange or different. You're doing it hopefully in your own practice in your own, surrounded by your own things. So hopefully that sort of thing will help as well. And in fact, one of the other things that we've been doing is lobbying government on reducing stress on IMG trainees by extending the tier two visa arrangements. So we've had a four month extension agreed. It's really interesting. When I went to talk to them about this, they said three months and I said six months. And so we ended on four So that seems to be how things work. But actually, you know, we're actually quite keen on uh, lobbying now for granting indefinite residence on achieving your CCT. So it just becomes normal to be allowed to stay once you've qualified because, you know, we need GPs. We need GPs desperately. And it seems crazy to be training people and then not making them feel welcome such that they then feel that they could go somewhere else. We want to keep them. And looking ahead to the conference, this is going to be your first annual conference as chair of the college. And so it's going to be your first conference speech. I mean, can you give us an indication of anything you're likely to be highlighting in that speech? Yes, I'll be talking about patients. I'll be talking about the crucial role of general practitioners and giving them the care they need. And what's so special about GPs that other healthcare professionals cannot do. And then how this is being affected by the current crisis in general practice. I'll also be talking about some of the brilliant and innovative work that GPs are doing in spite of their workload problems and, of course, launching the the manifesto for the coming general elections next year. What are you hoping to focus on as chair of the college over the next year? So now that I've got my feet under the table, I'll be concentrating on getting our four strategic priorities underway. Um, We've now had them accepted by council and we've developed our KPIs and a dashboard to show how we make progress. So the four, just to remind you, are the workload workforce crisis, making the RCGP much more our professional home for GPs with work on quality and diversity, our CPD offer and our membership offer, working on health inequalities and working on the sustainable healthcare strategic priorities as well. So those are the four things really, plenty to do. And then, of course, there's going to be lots of other things that will suddenly crop up that we least expect that we need to sort of find space for. Well, that seems like a really good place to leave things. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Camilla. 
It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Emma. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thank you so much to Professor Hawthorne for speaking with me this week. Don't forget that we'll be covering all the news from the RCGP conference in Glasgow, which you can find on GP Online, including what's in that RCGP manifesto for general practice. I'll be back next week in our usual Friday slot for our regular news review, so please do join me then. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do think about giving us a rating. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice wherever you get your podcasts.